Let's turn together to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. This morning we're going to read from verse 57 to verse 75, to the end of the chapter. Verse 57. And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet they found none. At the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses witness against you? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said unto him, You have said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Then they did spit in his face and buffet him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? Now Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel came unto him, saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what you say. And when he was gone into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto them that were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crew. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, you shall deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we now turn our attention to away from the things of this world, Lord, and to the words of your Son and the, the passion of your Son, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that apart from you we can do nothing. We pray that you give us ears to hear, you'd give us eyes to see, you'd broaden our perspective. Lord, help us to grasp the things that you want us to see in your Son. Lord, we know that you haven't given us these things frivolously and for no reason. We pray, Lord, that this morning that reason would be fulfilled. We pray, Lord, that Lord, we would all leave this place with awe and wonder 
Lord, change us by a view of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning's message I've called The Brightness of God's Love Seen Against the Blackness of Man's Sin. Now you all know the experience of getting up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, right? And it's pitch dark and you get to the bathroom and you kind of feel your way and you flick on the light switch and all of a sudden, bam, all this light hits you and your eyes are squinting and you're trying to adjust to the light, right? How many of you know that experience? You know what I'm talking about. You see that during the day you go in the bathroom and you turn on the light, it's the exact same light and it's no big deal. Your eyes are just fine. It's the same light, but there's a different perception at night than in the day. Or if I were to have a flashlight with me right now and I were to turn on the flashlight and wave it around, it probably wouldn't draw anyone's attention. Maybe me waving around would draw your attention, but the light wouldn't draw anyone's attention because the light is in a room that's full of light. But if we were, if we were in complete darkness, if there was no lights and it was night out and I turned the light on a flashlight, everyone's attention would be drawn to that light, would it not? And if I moved it over here and over there, you'd be watching it. Your attention would be fixed on that thing and we would all be looking because it's unique. Now I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you think that the love of God is like a light in the middle of the daytime that shines around and it doesn't draw anyone's attention? Do you think the love of God and and seeing the love of God and understanding the love of God is like going to the bathroom, turning on the light and nothing nothing really affects you or impacts you? You're indifferent about it. It's an indifferent thing. It's unaffecting. Or do you think that the love of God is more like the light that is turned on in a dark place that makes you squint, that's powerful, shocking, overwhelming? What do you think? What is the love of God to you? When you think about the love of God, is it this powerful, overwhelming thing? Is it one of a kind? Is it remarkable? Does it draw and keep your attention? Or is it commonplace, unnoticeable? Do you think that you love better than God? Or you know anyone else who loves as good as God? What do you think it's going to be like in heaven? Do you think heaven, when we see God and understand his amazing love, is going to be something like turning on the light in the middle of the night and having just an overwhelming sensation from God and his love? Or do you think it will be commonplace in heaven? You think in heaven we're going to be like, oh, whatever, God's love. Yeah, I I got that. Where's the bingo hall? Give me the bingo hall. We're going to be here for a long time. Come on. (laughs) Do you think we'll ever get used to the love of God in heaven? Do you think at first when we get to heaven it'll be, wow, this is so amazing. But after a while, because there's no sin in heaven, after a while we'll forget about the love of God. Because we'll forget about sin. You know, a million years in heaven, we'll think, sin? What's sin? I can't, can't remember what sin is. You sinned a long time ago. Did I? Yeah, here's the picture album. Really? It doesn't look like me anymore. Will we get used to the love of God in heaven? Or will it always remain this powerful, overwhelming thing to us? Will it be like our eyes that adjust to the light? Brothers and sisters, I'm convinced that even though there will be no sin in heaven, 
that you and I will never, ever get used to the love of God. Even though there will be no sin in heaven, and it will be a place full of light, but we'll never forget the love of God. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verse 13. And John, who saw into the Spirit and into heaven, saw this and recorded it for us so that everyone could see. Revelation chapter 5. I'll start with, we'll start in verse 11. John says, I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, and glory, and blessing. Now, do you think that's just a creed that they're saying? Because they have to. Thing that's like, oh, oh, it's up on the uh, the screen now. We have to say this. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive. Or do you think this is a declaration that's coming from the depth of their heart and the depth of their being? Worthy is the Lamb. Do you think they really believe that? To receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, blessing, all belongs to Him. He's worthy of it all. And in verse 13, listen to this just so you might think, well, that's just the angels. Look at verse 13. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Forever and ever, they're singing these praises to the Lamb. Forever and ever. It doesn't start like that and then eventually fade away. But forever and ever, they're singing like this. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 and look at verse 7. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. So let us start in verse 1. And you has he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. In times past you walked according to the course of this age, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy... Stingy or rich? Rich. A little bit of mercy or an abundance of mercy? Who is rich in mercy for his little love or great love? Little bit of love for you? Great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, has he quickened us together with Christ? 
for by grace are you saved. And he has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And here's the verse, verse 7. Here's the purpose. Paul tells us the purpose of why God looked at us, children of wrath, and came to save us through Jesus Christ for his great love. So that, verse 7, in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Here's the purpose of God saving you. So that in the ages to come, now in the Greek, ages to come means the future ages, the succeeding future ages that go on and on and on. He might demonstrate and reveal and proclaim the exceeding riches of his grace. See, when we think about God's grace, we're not supposed to think about a little bit, but exceeding riches. Think of the richest man on earth with all of his money and then correlate that into grace and that rich man has nothing compared to what God has in grace. That's how rich God is. Think about it. The richest man in the world, what is it to buy, buy you a house? What is it to buy you, what is it to take care of your needs for him? Nothing. And this is the way God is in his grace. We often think that when we sin, God's like, oh no, I'm going to have to draw from the, my reservoir of grace that's already starting to run out on this person. <laughs> you know? The exce- we're going to realize the exceeding rich, and God wants to, us to see that. Commentator in the 19th century, SDF Salmon, said this about Ephesians 2.7. Listen, God's purpose, therefore, is that in the eternal future, the future which opens with Christ's parousia, and in all the continuing length of that future, the grace of his ways with those once dead in sins should be declared and understood in all the grandeur of its exceeding riches. What do you think the future is about? Heaven, when we finally go to heaven, going to heaven doesn't end our wonder. It begins it. It's not that here on earth we're amazed that he would save a wretch like me. Right? Wow, I'm such a sinner. And, you know, I realize that. And, wow, it's so amazing that he'd saved me. That's so amazing. But once I get to heaven, whoa, heaven, that then thereafter it starts turning into something else. Our wonder begins, brothers and sisters, when we finally see the Lord, not just by faith, but by sight. Amazing grace we sing that saved a wretch like me. And the last verse that we usually sing is, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Our song will increase. Our joy will increase. Our wonder will increase more and more and more. Notice the lamb is the central figure in heaven. Notice in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, that he might proclaim the riches of his grace towards us in Christ Jesus. And the day that you and I forget about sin and forget about what God has done for us as sinners is the day that we forget about the Lamb. It's the day that we forget about grace and it's the day that we don't understand and forget about love. The day that we forget about sin. Like our eyes adjusting to the light. 
Once we were in darkness and the light was shining on us, but after a while, the darkness dissipates and then the light is all we see. The day we forget about sin is the day we forget about the Lamb. And our knowledge of the love of God is directly proportionate to our knowledge of our sin and His cross. You forget about those things and you don't know the love of God. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Paul tells us this, that God demonstrates His love towards us and make it personal. God shows His love towards you in that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. You forget those things. You're a sinner that Christ died for, and you don't know his love anymore, brothers and sisters. In 1 John chapter 4, John says this about the love of God. 1 John chapter 4, and in verse 9 he says this, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God. Now, loving God is a pretty important thing, and you hear all these religious people talk about it. But talking about the love of God, talking about you loving God will not help you see the love of God for you. If we just get together on Sundays and throughout the week and talk about how we need to love God, we need to do the right things, And if that's what religion is all about, what we need to do, we will not know the love of God. Because John says the love of God is not that we loved him, and that's a pretty comprehensive statement, but that he loved us. And what does that mean? That he loved us, verse 10, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the love of God. And every Christian knows the love of God. If you know that I'm a sinner who hadn't, didn't love God and he sent his son to die for my sins. You know the love of God. And this is what heaven is all about. See, when our perception of our personal righteousness or goodness goes up, then our perception of God's love and grace goes down. When you start thinking, oh, I am a pretty good person, I am a pretty righteous person. Yeah, I'm not pretty good here. Then your knowledge of God's love goes down because while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. While we were yet sinners, he died. That's the revelation of his love. Really, as a sinner, as an enemy, as someone who didn't love him, he died for me. Yeah, that's how you know how much he loves you. But if you start modifying that word sinner and saying, well, sinner doesn't mean that bad, that's why he died for me because I wasn't really that bad because I did have some love for him, you're missing the whole point. We start thinking that God is like us when we start doing that. I'm a pretty loving person. Yeah, God's kind of like me. And we start thinking that his love is like our love. We start comparing ourselves to him. We start comparing him to ourselves. One of the great sins in the Bible, God says, you thought I was like you. I'm not like you. I'm not like you at all. You see, we think we're good because we have a good day. How many of you have ever had a good day that you thought was a good day? Okay. You thought you had a really good, pious day, and you felt that day I really lived for the Lord. In those days, you feel good about yourself. You forget that God has had a flawless eternity. God has had a flawless eternity, and by flawless eternity, I don't just mean he didn't do that big sin over there. 
I mean, he has loved perfectly forever for all eternity. And one day of love from God shows that your good day was not a good day because you didn't commit the three big sins that you were seeking to avoid that day doesn't mean that you're a good person. God showers his blessings on the unjust and on his enemies, Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 5. If you want to be like him, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect in his love, even for his enemies, even for those that aren't his friends, even for those who don't deserve it. And when we start seeing ourselves in the light of him, friends, we start seeing that there is no one good but God alone. And that he loved me is an amazing, an amazing thing. So we need to learn to contrast our sin with God's love. We need to learn to see our unrighteousness in the light of his righteousness. And when we can see those things, not one or the other, Christianity is not just about seeing how unrighteous you are, because if all we saw is how unrighteous we are, and we never saw the love of God, we wouldn't know his love. You just think, okay, I'm an unrighteous person and I don't know his love, so maybe God is unrighteous too. I don't know. But if all we saw is his goodness and his righteousness and we never considered our sin, we'd never know his love because his love is shown in that he died for us as sinners. We need both of these things in order to understand. And the passion of Christ, which is where we are now in Matthew, is the greatest revelation of the man of mankind's sin and the greatest revelation of the love of God. So we go through the passion of Christ, which is his betrayal, his trial, his sufferings, his death, and his resurrection. In the passion of Christ, we see the appalling way that man treated the truth. The appalling way that man treated God the one who is perfect. We see what men is, are really like. If you ever doubtful, are men really that bad? Read the Passion. Read what they did to Jesus. And if you ever wonder, is God really that good? As the Christians say, read the Passion. And see Jesus. And understand what he's doing for you. Because all of it was appointed by God. The brightness of God's love is seen against the blackness of man's sin. And this morning, as we go through the passage that we read, I want you to keep this in mind. As we look at the blackness of the sin of the Pharisees and the blackness of the sin of Peter, and we look at Jesus, I want you to consider the brightness, the stunning, overwhelming love of God that's revealed in this passion. Let's look at verse 57. Matthew 26, verse 57. Matthew tells us, And they that had laid hold on Jesus, they laid hold on Jesus. Now this idea here in the Gospel account of Jesus having hands laid on him, in the Greek word, it's a violent seizure. They grab him. is emphatic. This is an emphatic and important point that Matthew is drawing our attention to. Look at verse 45 of chapter 26. Jesus wakes the sleeping disciples. Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, 
What's at hand? The hour. The hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed where, does Jesus say? He's betrayed into the hands of sinners. This is an emphatic and important point. Look at verse 50. And Jesus says to Judas, Friend, why are you come? And then they came and they laid hands on Jesus and they took him. The laying of hands on Jesus, Matthew is drawing our attention to it. In Luke chapter 22, when Luke tells us the account, after they grab hold on Jesus, Luke says, This is the hour of darkness. He said, I was teaching in the temple and you guys never laid hands on me in the temple. But now the hour of darkness has come. In the Gospel of John, many times in the Gospel of John, it says that they wanted to lay their hands on Jesus, but they could not because Jesus' hour had not come. The hour is referring to the hour that God delivers Jesus into the hands of men and sinners and his enemies. This is the hour that Jesus was fearing. We know that Jesus was praying, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' prayer is slightly different. Father, if it is possible, let the hour pass from me. The hour when he's handed in, or he's given over into the hands of men and sinners. He's trembling at this hour. Why? Because is he afraid of what men can do to him? Is he afraid of getting grabbed by men? Really? The Son of God? The Messiah? Christ? Fearing men? No. Because Jesus understood that nothing happens randomly. It's not just men hate him and come and get him. But that God, who had protected him from the hands of his enemies up to that point, was now giving him over. It was God who was delivering Jesus up. It was God who is now abandoning Jesus to suffering. And nothing happens but by God. It is no accident. Jesus was afraid, not because of man's hands, but because of God's hands. Jesus knew he was actually falling into the hands of God. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 31, the author of Hebrews says this, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's just a fact. You want to know why Jesus was afraid? Because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The hands of God's justice and God's judgment and God's wrath. The word, the key word there in the Greek in Hebrews 10.31 is fall into. And it actually means you fall into the trap or you get ensnared by his hands. It's like you're just walking along, and then God suddenly goes, gotcha. You're now in my hands, like a trapped animal. It's not a good thing to be in God's hands, and his hands are like a trap. So of course Jesus was afraid. And Jesus was praying, if it's possible, let this pass. If there's any other way to save men, let's do it. Because it's a fearful thing. But God, if there's no other way to save man, let's go for it. Because we love men. If there's no other way for me to save Ross or to save Silas, but that I get ensnared into the hands of God, let's go for it. A fearful thing to be in God's hands. There's another way to be in God's hands. 
Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, verse 28 and 29, that a person can be in God's hands and he's safe in God's hands. Because God's hands are not a trap. God's hands are protecting that person. He says, no one can pluck them out of my Father's hands. Because my Father is greater than all, and I give unto them eternal life. And when they have eternal life, they're my sheep, and no one can pluck them out of my Father's hands. You're safe in the Father's hands. You're blessed in the Father's hands. Which are you in this morning? Are you in the Father's hands of blessing? Are you in the Father's hands of a trap? Jesus certainly was afraid of God's hands, but he trusted in them also because what was the last, one of the last things Jesus said when he was on the cross? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now he's saying that to the Father who's crushing him with his hands. It's like in the book of Job where Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And Jesus could say this because Jesus knew that there's more to God than just judgment and wrath. Not less than that, however. Jesus doesn't have this phony idea of God that, no, God wouldn't hurt anybody. God wouldn't judge anybody. God doesn't have any wrath. God wouldn't send anyone to hell. God wouldn't punish people for their sins. No, Jesus talked more about that than anyone else in the Bible. But Jesus knew that there was more to God than wrath, more to God than just law, more to God than just Settling accounts. It's not one or the other. We trust in the grace and the love of God. And we trust in His kind and gracious, generous hands to save us from the hands of His death. The hands of wrath. And Jesus is our example He's in the hands of the wrath of God. And he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. So when we read this, brothers and sisters, in the Passion, let's not skim over it and just think, oh, he was grabbed by a mob. True. Why was he grabbed by a mob when that mob could never touch him before? Because God was delivering him up. And Jesus knew that he was in God's hands. They lead him to Caiaphas, the high priest who's been ruling for almost 17 years as the high priest in Israel, a powerful man. These are the men who sent the Judas and the guards to get Jesus and they bring them back and they're ready for him. They expected Jesus to be brought and he was because the hour had come. They did not like Jesus at all. They hated Jesus. They wanted Jesus dead. And when you read through the Gospel of Matthew, if you were to start here and say, oh, they want Jesus to be dead, okay, and you don't know anything about Jesus, and you were to think, oh, they want this guy dead, so he must have done something wrong. He must be a bad guy. So I'm going to go back, and I'm going to see what did Jesus do that made these guys, and these aren't bad guys, these are good guys. These are the government, these are the religious guys, these are good. What, what did Jesus do in the previous part of the Gospel of Matthew that would get him in trouble and be uh, incurring capital punishment. And what do you find? Do we see Jesus committing any murders? Does Jesus steal anything? Does he kidnap anybody? Does he do anything worthy of death? 
what we see Jesus doing is exactly why they hated him and wanted him to die. Jesus preached righteousness. Jesus preached truth. And we might not realize this, though the Bible tells us over and over and over again, but the reason why the world hates God and the world hates Christ and the world hates Christ followers isn't because we go around healing people and being, doing nice community service. The reason why we're hated is because of truth and because of righteousness. Jesus stood boldly and preached the truth. And the truth is this. You might say, well, what's the truth that gets them so mad? The truth is there is nobody who's good. The truth is, is that in the judgment of God, his standard is perfection. You're going to face God on judgment day. And guess what? The guys that everyone thinks are going to make it aren't going to make it. You know, you all look up to the Pharisees and the religious leaders as guides. They're blind guides. You know, you think that they're really good. They've never in their life done a good deed. They've never kept the law. And the world hates me, Jesus says in John 7, 7, because I tell them that their works are evil. And who are, who's the ones that want Jesus dead? Who's the world? We think the world must be the irreligious. No, the world is the religious world. The religious world that hides in the darkness. The religious world that doesn't love the truth. The religious world that pretends that they're good and pretends that they're righteous and they really aren't. And the, this world hates Christ, the truth, because of what he preaches. He preaches righteousness. Righteousness is absolute perfection. And if you aren't absolutely perfect, you're not going to make it. And you can come to me, Jesus said, and have life freely. Totally free. You don't have to do all the things that the religious world is saying. Because there are a bunch of phonies that don't even do it themselves. God is a God of grace. And this is why they hated Christ. In this last episode of Christ's life and death, we see the culmination of everything that has gone before. The masks are now off. Before the Pharisees hated him, before they wanted him dead, but they'd play nice. But now they've got him at night behind closed doors, and the masks are off. This last episode reveals who they were all along. We can say that the entire Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is primarily about the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees and the leaders of his day from beginning to end. And now it's the showdown. Now it's high noon, so to speak. They wanted him. They've now got him. But the irony is, it's not because they're clever, but it's because God has given, them, has given Jesus over into their hands. And the irony is they think Jesus is on trial, but in truth, they are the ones who are on trial. Jesus is in God's hands. Jesus is offering himself up to God. Jesus, God is laying upon Jesus the sin of the world, and these men are ignorant of it. They think they're trying him, but the truth is they are being exposed for who they are. They are simply the tool that God is using. And after God uses the tool, he's going to judge them. So there's a lot of irony in this passion narrative. 
Here's some more irony. Verse 59. Now the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus. Now that's odd. These are, the, these are the religious guys. You know, you'd think that it'd be these quote-quote scum of society who would be seeking false witnesses. Lie to me before the judge. Come and say this so that I can get off. Scotch-free. These are the religious leaders. If we were to go back in time to the first century and say, who are the really good religious leaders that are guiding the people in the ways of righteousness and truth? Everyone would say, those guys, the Pharisees. And here we see their true colors. Jesus reveals their true colors. If Jesus had never shown up, we wouldn't have read about this. We wouldn't have known that this is what they were really like. When he's around, they don't look so good. And they're seeking two witnesses, it says, according to the law of Moses, in order to condemn anybody, you have to have at least two witnesses. And so they're seeking to have witnesses come and testify against him. They're seeking evidence to convict. But we know that this is a bogus trial. It's a kangaroo court, as it's called. The verdict, they have already know what the verdict is. They already know what they want to do. They're just seeking to somehow get the bill passed through. Johann Bengel, scholar in the 1700s, says, no greater act of injustice was ever committed than that against our Lord. The way that they treated him in his trial. But the court runs into a problem in verse 60. They don't find any witnesses against Jesus. There's no evidence to convict him. They want him dead. They're seeking lying witnesses to do it, and they can't. A.T. Robertson writes, they found false witness in plenty, but not the false witness that would stand any sort of test They couldn't prove anything. There was nothing worthy of death which they were looking for. But Matthew tells us that at last two witnesses come forward and these are to give us a sampling of what has been going on. Two witnesses come forward in verse 60 and 61. In 61 they accuse Jesus of saying this, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. Now we know that This saying is not found in any of the synoptic Gospels, but it is, or a saying like it is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 19. And if this is the saying that they're referring to, they're actually misquoting Jesus. This is false testimony. They're saying that Jesus said, I can destroy this temple and build it again in three days. But what we find in John, chapter 2, verse 19, is Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. Destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. And was he even referring to the temple building and the temple structure? No. He was referring to his own body. You guys kill me and I'll raise it in three days. And that's exactly what is about to happen. In fact, Jesus says this was the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the grave for three days and three nights, and he'll rise from the dead. And this is the sign that is given. And it's about to happen. And here they're quoting a perversion of these words. But even this charge against Jesus isn't sufficient to put him to death. And in verse 62, the high priest rises up, probably very irritated by how the trial has been going. There's no witnesses to condemn, but perhaps if he can now 
create a witness out of Jesus' own mouth, if he can get Jesus to speak, what do you say about this? Maybe we can catch him in his words. There is no witness, but he's seeking to now create. But unfortunately, Caiaphas is disappointed when Jesus remains silent. What do you say against all these witnesses, Jesus? What do you got to say to your, say for yourself? Jesus says nothing. can imagine the atmosphere in that room. Jesus is not silent because of his Miranda rights, as we call it here in the United States. You have a right to remain silent. Anything you say or do will be held against you in a court of law. Jesus was not remaining silent because he was seeking to avoid condemnation. He was playing it shrewdly, like a lawyer would, would advise. John Calvin writes this, Christ was silent, not only because the objections or accusations were frivolous, not worthy of an answer, but because having been appointed to be a sacrifice, he had thrown aside all anxiety about defending himself. Jesus wasn't about to stand there and say, that's not true. I didn't say that. You guys are lying. He's not trying to defend himself. Isaiah 53 verse 7 tells us this is a fulfillment of prophecy that is a sheep before shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus is the sacrifice who's going to his death silently, willingly, without the anxiety of defending himself. But the high priest is angry now. And you can hear the anger now in his voice in verse 63. When Jesus holds his peace, the high priest answers and shouts out, I adjure thee by the living God that you tell us whether you be the Christ, the Son of God. Imagine the silence in that room. He's angry. The term Son of God, the Jews themselves would use that to refer to the Messiah. The Messiah is the Son of God. The Jews would not use that, however, in the sense that we as Christians understand it. Son of God didn't imply divinity upon the part of the Messiah. So when we read this, we can either ask, is he saying, are you the, the Messiah, the Divine One? Or is he saying, basically, are you the Messiah? However, we do know that Throughout Jesus' ministry, he did things that made them think of this phrase in a deeper way. And you'll remember that he would say, your, son, your sins are forgiven you. And they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? Or he says, before Abraham was, I am. They said, they pick up stones to kill this guy. Or he says, I and the Father are one. And they said, this guy is making himself equal with God. Jesus is infusing into this phrase, this very common phrase, this messianic phrase, more than just, I'm the Messiah. I am the Messiah, the Son of God, and I come from God, and I was with God, and I am God. And perhaps the high priest is asking him that in that way. You say you're this, are you that? And Jesus answers with these words, you have said. Now we might think, that's kind of an evasion, isn't it? You have said. What does that mean? But if we were familiar with just the way of speaking in those days and the idiom, 
idiomatic way of speaking in those days, this is without a doubt, and everyone, every scholar knows this, an, an affirmative, an unequivocal affirmative statement. Yes, that's who I am. But it's called a qualified affirmative. He's affirming it, but it's qualified because he wants to point out that, yes, it's true what you say, but you're the one who's saying it. It's like our idiom in English, you got it. You got it. Jesus here unmistakably declares that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. Did Jesus ever say he was the Messiah? Yes. Did Jesus ever say he's the Son of God? Yes. But he says more than that. In the Greek, the word nevertheless, which is how the King James renders it, you have said nevertheless in the Greek. The Greek is not nevertheless, it's actually, but more than that. Yes, you have said, and I'm going to tell you more. And he says, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Here are clear messianic references from the Old Testament that every one of them in that room would have been familiar with. Jesus refers to the Psalm 110, which speaks of the Messiah sitting at the right hand of God. He speaks of Daniel chapter 7, which refers to the Messiah coming in the clouds of heaven. But what's shocking is that he's applying it to himself. And he's basically saying this, soon you will know that I am the Messiah, the Son of God, the one to whom these verses, prophecies apply. Pretty soon you're going to realize the Son of Man is sitting at the right hand of the Father and coming in the clouds of heaven. What a claim. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Jesus says they will see it. They will acknowledge it. They will know it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Now look at verse 6. Speaking of Jesus. Philippians 2, 6. Jesus, Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be made to be equal with God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Verse 9, Wherefore, or for this reason, God also has highly exalted him. That's what Jesus just said, wasn't it? You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. For this reason, God has also highly exalted him. How high has he exalted him? To his own right hand. And has given him a name which is above every name. How, how, what kind of a name has he given him? Greatest name of all. There's no name greater than the name of Jesus. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why did God highly exalt Jesus? Jesus. 
there's two things in this passage, right? God highly exalted Jesus because Jesus was obedient unto death, the death of the cross, and God highly exalted Jesus so that every knee should confess that Jesus is Lord unto, as Alan just said, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was exalted because of what he did. Jesus is exalted so that God may be glorified. Jesus is exalted for every eye to see, for every tongue to confess, and every single person to know that God is like this. Because Jesus was perfectly obedient, he perfectly reveals the Father. You and I don't perfectly reveal the Father. We can tell you where to look to see God because we know. But Jesus, because of who he is, because of what he did, because he obeyed God unto death, because in the garden he said, Father, if there's no other way to save men, let's do this thing. And he goes to death for you and for me to save us, to reveal the grace of God, to reveal the love of God. And for that reason, God placards Christ for all the world to see and says, this is the Son who I love. Look, hear, learn, see, and you will know me. Jesus reveals to us who God is and he shows us the brightness of the love of God. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. And here we have another verse that speaks of Jesus being exalted to the right hand of God. Hebrews 1 verse 3. So let's start in verse 1. God, who in various times and in diverse manners spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken. Here is a declaration that God has, past tense, already spoken. The question now for you is, are you listening to what he has said? He has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. And here it is in verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory. Who is? Jesus. How bright do you think that is? Bathroom light in the middle of the night? Bright? Yes. Brighter. Who being the brightness of God's glory and the express There's not a defect in Jesus. There's not anything in Jesus that we can look at and say, God's not like that. Who being the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So here we have Jesus now sitting at the right hand of God, the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and what Jesus reveals to us and what God wants us to see is that is his love his love that is revealed against the blackness of man's sin Jesus doesn't show us that forget about the whole wrath thing guys it's not real it's just love no Jesus shows us that you know the whole wrath thing is real but there's something greater there's something more than that there's something above that you are a sinner 
You've broken the commands. You've deserved death. You are not good, but God loves you. And he loves you this much. Let me ask you this morning, do you see the Son of Man enthroned? Jesus said, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Father. Do you see this? One day we will all see it with our eyes. But do you see it at this time through faith? Do you know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? And the underscore here is on Jesus. Not just there is a Messiah, but Jesus is the Messiah. Who's Jesus? The preacher of righteousness. The preacher of truth. The one who took the cup of the wrath of God for us. The one who laid down his life and rose again so that you could be saved by the great, exceedingly rich grace of God. That Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is enthroned. Do you know that that Jesus is enthroned? When you think of Jesus, is it this one? When you think of Messiah, is it him? Because there's many different ideas in this world, many false Christs, but this is the one. Do you see the brightness of the love of God shining forth against the blackness of man's sin in the risen and exalted Son of God? Do you see? God commands you to look. God tells you, listen and look and see my son and you shall be saved. He calls you to look. How do you respond? In verse 65 and 66, we see how the self-righteous respond. We see how the self-righteous respond. Matthew 26, verse 65. How they responded then and how they respond now to this declaration that this Jesus is the Son of God. That this Jesus is the one that God exalts. Extreme revulsion. Extreme revulsion. I do not like that. I will not see you in the future sitting on the right hand of God and coming in the clouds of heaven. The high priest shrieks out blasphemy and rips his garments as was obligated for him to do if he heard blasphemy utter. Grabs the collar of his shirt and tears. There's plenty of witnesses. He says, What need do we have of further witnesses? We don't need two or three anymore. You all heard him say it. They unanimously declare he deserves death. What do you think, he says in verse 66? What do you think? What do you think about this? What a great question. I love Bible questions. (laughs) Even when they're uttered from... uh, Actually, often they're the most profound when they're uttered from non-believers. What do you think? They all said, he's deserving of death. Why is he deserving of death? Not because he sinned. Not because he did anything against the law. 
but because he told the truth. Man put the truth on trial and condemned it to death. They put the truth on trial, the truth spoke, and man said, blasphemy, put him away, send him away and put him in the grave so we don't have to see him. Jesus was not condemned for his sins because he was innocent. He was condemned because he was innocent. He was condemned precisely because he didn't sin by lying. And he declared the truth. This is who I am. And everything I said is the word of God. There's no guile in my mouth. I'm telling you the truth. And for his innocence, for his righteousness, he was condemned. Thus Jesus was hated for righteousness' sake, and so shall you be, and so shall I be, hated for righteousness' sake, not because we proclaim that we're righteous, that would be a lie, but if we stand up and proclaim the truth and say, I am not righteous, you are not righteous, God is righteous, but God sent his Son to die for us so that we could be righteous as a gift. This is the truth, you'll be hated for it. Jesus was hated for righteousness' sake. And in verse 67... In 68, we see how the truth is treated. We see how the Son of God is treated, and it is appalling. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells us that they covered his face with spit. They covered his face with spit. It wasn't that someone spit in his face and it just kind of hit him in the cheek and dripped down. They one by one because I think it would be difficult for one man to cover his face with spit. <laughs> they one by one stood before Jesus and spit in his face, as much as an insult then as it would be today. And they covered it with spit. His face glistened in the light of the torches. And they buffeted him, it says, in verse 67 which in the Greek means they literally made a fist and punched him in the face. They came up and punched him in the face. In verse 67, they say they smote him with the palms of their hands, which means in the Greek, they slapped him on the ear. They boxed him on the ear and they mocked him and said, prophesy unto us, son of God, who's the one who's hitting you? Because in one gospel it says they blindfolded him so he couldn't see. Ironic, isn't it? They put a blindfold on him so that he could not see. And then they boxed him about and punched him in the face and mocked him. Charles Spurgeon gives us some good advice. Spurgeon tells us to take this verse and to put it together with another verse. Spurgeon says, take this verse where they're boxing Jesus in the face and spitting on his face and slapping his face and tie it together with Revelation, you don't have to turn there if you don't like, but I can just go. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, and it says, I saw a great white throne. And him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. What a face. This was not a common face that they were spitting on and punching. This was the face that in the future, earth and heaven will flee from that face. 
What a faith. Earth and heaven would flee, but at this moment, sinful men are spitting on it and slapping on it, and Jesus does nothing. Jesus does nothing. You'd think that every ounce of righteousness and justice and wrath in God would rise up at this moment and smite the ungodly. And it didn't. Those men went to bed that night in peace. Those men went to bed, got warm and cozy, and slept. They celebrated the Passover. Many of them probably lived on for many years. Nothing happened. And they were slapping him and spitting on this face. Why? Why did God endure this? And there's only one answer. And the answer is not because God is indifferent about sin. Okay? The answer is not because God doesn't really care that much. He's sort of just lackadaisical. That's not true. The only reason why God endured this, brothers and sisters, is because if God had not endured it, and think about this for a moment, if God had said, it's enough, none of us would be saved. Not one of us would be saved. If God hadn't endured this, not one of us would be saved. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6 gives us the prophecy that Jesus gave his back to the smiters. He gave his cheeks to those who plucked off the beard. He hid not his face from spit. Jesus is giving his face. And why? Because he loves you. Do you know any love like this elsewhere? Because he loves you, he endured this for you. It was not for him merely. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised its shame. For the joy that was set... What joy do you think that was? Is Jesus thinking at that time, okay, endure this horrendous blasphemy and ungodliness because in the future I'll be sitting on the beach and I'll be drinking a lovely drink and having everything just at ease. Is that what he's thinking? Just endure this breach of righteousness and godliness in the name of everything that's good and holy while everything that's good and holy is being destroyed right now. Just endure it for the joy that's set before me. Pretty soon I'm going to be relaxing. Is that the joy? Just personal relaxation later? The joy that was set before Christ was the joy of your salvation. It was the joy that he might be with you forever. Dear brothers and sisters, this is the love of God for you. This is the love of Jesus for you. Isn't that beautiful? He did it for you because God loves you passionately. If this doesn't tell you that God loves you passionately, nothing will tell you. Nothing. You'll never know. And if you don't see the love of God here in Christ, you'll never know the love of God as it really is. That God would love men. What is man? We're seeing what man is here in this story. Men who are smiting him, who are holding a bogus trial for him, who are self-righteous, 
truth-hating men. He's loving them and dying for them. This is mankind. This is us. And it's only because of this scene that the brightness of God's love is revealed. Brothers and sisters, if you don't, if you don't know anything of the love of God in this overwhelmingly powerful, bright, passionate way as it is revealed in Jesus, you're completely missing out on what God wants you to see. You're not really understanding his love for you. This is his love. But in case someone were to think, well, okay, but these are the guys that hate Jesus. You know, they're sinners, yes, but surely there are some good people in this world that Christ died for. Maybe he didn't die for these guys that were smiting him. Maybe he died for someone else. Maybe he died for the good guys because they're not all smiting him. There's people out there. People like who? Well, people like uh, Peter. (laughs) And here we have in the next, the last section of our text this morning, Peter. And if anyone, if anyone was a candidate for such a category, if anyone was a candidate for not being like the rest of the world, someone who loves God, someone who loves Jesus, someone who's dedicated, someone who's committed, someone who's passionate for Jesus, someone who is obedient to Jesus, Peter would be the one. If Jesus was ever to die for good people, Peter would be in that category. For Peter is Jesus' top disciple. Peter has shown us that he's willing to walk on water for Jesus. Peter has shown us that he's willing to die for Jesus. Peter has shown us that he's willing to swing a sword for Jesus. The one who said, wash my head and my hands too, if I can be with you. Well, surely Jesus is going to die for good people like him. But here we see, and this is such an important, such an important story in our Bibles. Don't read this as just some historical aside that doesn't relate to you. God put it in all the Gospels for a reason. To show us that even Peter is black with sin. Even Peter is not worthy, righteous, good. Peter does not deny Christ once nor twice, but three times Peter shows, Peter proves himself to be a liar, a coward, a vain oath-taker, a denier of Christ, and a foolish self-confident man who resisted the words of Jesus earlier that night. Peter was a foolish, self-confident man. When Jesus said, you're going to deny me, he said, not me. Yes, you will. No, I won't. And then he lied and was a coward and he took a vain oath and he cursed and he swore and he denied even knowing Jesus. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake. Peter's sin is no small sin. Don't think that, well, it wasn't really that bad. Peter, this night, wept bitterly because he was confronted by his true self. He was confronted by his true and ugly self, how he was self-condemned, he was worthy of death, and he had no hope in himself at all. This is what Peter learned that night. There is no hope in 
man to be good. Peter said, though everyone denies you, I won't. I'm going to show that there are some good people in this world who do what is right. And what we learn in this story is no. If there were ever bitter tears in this world, it, were these. it was these. But I want you to consider this morning, in light of Peter's magnificent sin, in the light of him in his cowardice, cowardice, can any of you relate to Peter? Cowardice, lying, self-confidence, self-righteousness, putting your hope in yourself. In the light of Peter's sin, consider this morning that he was forgiven. Consider that the one who sinned like this can be forgiven, healed and restored, and that there's hope in Jesus Christ for sinners. There's hope for all of us when we consider this story of Peter. There's hope that no matter how hard you may fall, and even curse God and say, draw down curses on yourself and think that there's no hope because I've finally blown it, I've finally crossed the line. There is forgiveness and restoration because of Jesus. Consider this morning that the Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, the Pharisee, the chief of them all, he was forgiven. Paul was forgiven, reconciled and redeemed. There's hope for those who spit on the face of Christ, who spit on the face of God. There's hope. This is what we proclaim as Christians, that there's forgiveness from God, even to you, if you were to spit in God's face. That's the kind of God he is. Not because he says, we'll just let it go, no big deal. But because God sent his son to die, the brightness of his person the express image of him. With spit on his face and bruises all over his face, he died on the cross for you and for me. The Savior of Peter and Paul lives. The Savior of Peter and Paul is risen and exalted at the right hand of God. The Savior of Peter and Paul, I wanted to declare this morning in closing, that he died for you. That he died so that you could be saved because of the joy of him knowing that you would be with him forever. He died for you and he loves you and there's forgiveness with you and if you're struggling with condemnation, you can come to Christ and he can save you and he can forgive you and he's willing to do that. You don't have to twist his arm because he passionately loves you. There are no good people in this world. If you came here this morning thinking that you're a good person, thinking that you've got something different than other people, you didn't. Christ did not die for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. Jesus didn't come into the world for you, if that's what you think. But Jesus died for the whole world, because there is no one righteous. There is no one righteous. And against the blackness of mankind's sin, and only by acknowledging that within yourself, only when you acknowledge that you're a sinner will you be able to understand the love of God. So the longer you hold out and the longer you are stubborn and the longer you say, no, the lo- so longer it will be that you don't understand the passionate love 
of God. It's all laid out for us to see. Is the love of God to you this morning a bright bathroom light in the middle of the night? Stunning you, making you squint, overwhelming you with its power? Or is it a thing that's commonplace? Like your love, like man's love, has the love of God captured your attention and shaken you with its beauty? I'd like to remind us this morning that in the eternal future, God's purpose is for you to delight forever in the grandeur of the exceeding riches of his love. That's why you are here. And that's why he died for you. This is what it's all about. The passion is the greatest revelation of man's sin and of the bright love of God. I'd like to just close this morning with these words. The bonds of death are burst. The ransom has been paid. And thou art on thy father's throne in glorious robes arrayed. Do you see? Let's pray. Father, we don't have words at all who can fathom the depth of your love. Deliver us from shallowness. Deliver us from thinking that you are like us and that you aren't holy. Lord, cause us to see your overwhelming love in the face of your Son. Change us, Lord, through your Son. Help every one of us to leave here this morning with a deeper appreciation of how much you love us and how passionate and unconditional and relentless it is. Don't let us settle for just believing that you're just a nice guy. Thank you for this time, Lord. Let these words sink down deep into our hearts. Be glorified through your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.